0: Welcome to another episode of Behind the Stigma. I'm your host, Yara and today we'll be talking about a fascinating topic that has recently boomed in the mental health field the brain gut connection. Trillions of bacteria reside in the human gut and have been shown to play a crucial role in our mood and mental well being through an influence on neural, immune, and endocrine pathways. We will be discussing some of these topics in this episode. Today, we have an exceptionally awesome guest who is an expert on the field of microbiomes and someone I am so excited to speak to, Dr. Ruri Robertson. Dr. Robertson is a scientist and researcher from Ireland who specializes in studying the human gut microbiome. His work looks at how microbes influence the human body by examining interactions between microbes and human health, as well as disease. He's completed his bachelor's in nutrition at University College Dublin, and his PhD in microbiology from University College Cork. His most recent interest lies in the relationship between the gut microbiome and child growth and development. Dr. Robertson is a bit of a celebrity here, most popularly known for his TED Talk back in 2015 called Food for Thought which has about 4 million views today. Very impressive. And he's also started his own podcast during the pandemic called Biomes, which is a super cool podcast that talks about the different microbes and how they relate to disease and health. So do make sure to check it out. Ruri, welcome to the BTS podcast, if I may, may call you that. It's truly such an honor to have you here and be a part of this episode. So I want to kick off this discussion by hearing more about your story. How did you end up in this field studying these tiny bacterias in our body, and what has your journey been like so far?
1: I'm delighted to chat to you, Sarah. Yeah, I I mean, you've given a, a good kind of overview of my background already, but I guess I was finishing school and didn't know what I wanted to study in university, and I was given good advice that just follow whatever you're interested in. And it can be quite overwhelming, you know, choosing what you want to want to do and what you want to kind of essentially study or work on for the rest of your life. So I figured I was interested in food. You know, I enjoyed eating food and somewhat cooking it, but I came from a family of very good cooks. So I decided that that's what I was interested in. And that was helped by me reading an article that my, my dad had given me in a magazine and said, read, read some of this and you might trigger some of your interests. And I read this interesting article about a certain animal in the Philippines known as the Asian palm civet that eats coffee beans in the jungle and digests them. And these remain kind of intact, but they're fermented somewhat through the digestive tract of this cat-like creature It's passed out the other end. And these are actually a delicacy and it's known as Kopi coffee and it sells for huge amounts of money in, in that region of the world, but all over the world now as well. So strangely enough, for whatever reason, that, that triggered my interest in uh, <laughs> in food, uh, amongst uh, being from a family of of good chefs and people who appreciated good food. So yeah, I, I went on to study human nutrition, and and that was really interesting for for a few years, studying how food affects your body, how it can maintain health and prevent disease, but also how it could contribute to disease as well. And I kind of faced a, a similar crossroads at the end of my undergraduate degree to kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do next and had a bit of experience working in a lab and and working in research. And so decided that I would go and apply for a PhD because that meant I'd really be at the forefront of this research. I'd be the person making these discoveries about how food affected your body. Mm. And so I went on to to start a PhD in University College Cork. And I was somewhat lucky. I, I was starting a PhD, which wasn't really to do with the gut microbiome at all. At first, it was to do with Different types of dietary fats and and how they affect various aspects of inflammation and um, various other outcomes. But I happened to be within a big research centre who, who were kind of at the the forefront of this microbiome field, which was slowly becoming very exciting and and becoming more well known. And there was a lot of interesting research coming out of it. So it was more so by chance that I happened to be in the right place at the right time, mm-hmm. that I started kind of looking at the gut microbiome and some of these studies and how these dietary fats that I were studying affected the gut microbiome, especially in early life and in, in mothers and babies. And so really, I, I'm lucky that I'm kind of riding the wave. And I, the last couple of years, I had more of a focus I'm a PhD, on my PhD on the gut microbiome. And I became more fascinated in, in the field itself. You know, at first I was, I would have turned my nose up at bacteria and said, I don't want to study bacteria, I'm more into, into nutrition. But as you kind of learn more about this, you realize what a profound impact our gut microbiomes have on our health. And again, I was kind of lucky to be part of a lab for a while, which many of whom were neuroscientists and were studying this new kind of link between the gut and the brain. And so I began conducting some research with them, which looked at how different fats and, and different kind of dietary components in early life affected the gut microbiome and how that subsequently might affect um, brain health and behavior. And yeah, and I've, I've kind of been riding that wave ever since. So yeah, and that's, that's kind of where I am today. I've gone through my, ho- my whole story. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much. That was a very captivating introduction. I want to assume that not everybody listening is an expert in your topic of research. You've been mentioning the gut microbiota and microbiome. Can you explain to us what do we mean by the gut microbiota and microbiome and is there a difference? Yeah,
1: it's a good good question. So we are covered all over our body and inside our body in trillions of microorganisms and the kind of reason that we haven't really appreciated this enough before is because we were never able to study them properly. We were only able to grow a small number of bacteria and microbes inside of our um, that live inside of our body. Many of them are very hard to grow. Now that we can read their DNA and use other kind of laboratory techniques to kind of study different microbes, we realize that there are just thousands of different types of bacteria, viruses, fungi, archaea, all these kind of different microorganisms living all over our skin, in our lungs, predominantly in our gut, but really all over our body. So collectively, all of these microbes that live within us and on us are known as our, the human microbiota. And that's just the kind of collective term for all of the microbes living within an environment. So those living within, it, within the human body would be the human microbiota. But you can have mm-hmm. a, a microbiota within soil, within the sea, within anywhere anywhere else. And it's just the, the term for an ecosystem where lots of different microorganisms are living together. And so if you count up all of those bacteria alone in, in the human body, we're more bacterial than we are human. Mm-hmm. There are probably about 40 trillion bacteria. That does not even include all the viruses, which are probably 10, 100 times more, Doesn't include all these other microbes as well. But we know as humans that it's our genes that define how our body functions, very much so. And we all are genetically similar in some ways, but genetically different in, in other ways. So really, if we start reading the kind of genes of all these microbes, we realize that we're even less human. There are you know, trillions and trillions of microbial genes, and only about twenty three thousand genes in the human genome. So we're only about one percent genetically human, if you include our whole ecosystems that we're carrying here, and ninety nine percent microbial. So collectively, if, if you think about this whole ecosystem genetically and these microbes that are living on, uh, on us and within us, that's what we usually refer to as the microbiome. A lot of times, these two terms are kind of are used interchangeably. Maybe scientifically, they shouldn't be because they are kind of two distinct things, but a lot of the time, the words are the same. But really, they would just refer to this ecosystem or this community of microorganisms living on and within the, the human body.
0: It was either in one of your articles or TED Talk where you mentioned that we have two brains, one, obviously, which is in our head, but then there's a second brain, which is in our gut or is our gut also known as the enteric nervous system. Can you tell us a little bit more about this system? And is that essentially what we mean by the brain-gut connection?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So our our central nervous system is our brain and our, and our spinal cord. And so that is, the as we know, that the main part of our body that sends electrical signals everywhere else throughout our body to tell our body what to do to move our hand, to use our heart, keep our heart beating, things like that. But we have a a peripheral nervous system. So that is all of these other connections, all these nerves and neurons that branch out from the central nervous system, that branch out from the spinal cord and the brain to reach these other parts of our body. And so this peripheral nervous system connects up with every other part of our body. You know, we have nerves in our fingers and our toes and and everywhere else, and, and they connect to every other organ. But the gut is a huge site of this peripheral nervous system. It contains hundreds of millions of neurons. It's a really kind of active neural organ, if you want to want to call it that. Mm-hmm. So much so that it can actually function on its own. If, if you kind of sever some of the main connections, you know, between the brain and the gut, it, it can keep moving. It has it has a lot of nervous function, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it kind of is its own brain because it has a huge amount of nerves and neurons connecting it to the main central nervous system. Mm -hmm. But it also, I suppose, just conducts so much activity that can feed back into the brain as well. So there's kind of like a two-way system where our brain can send messages from the brain down to the gut, but there can also be messages Mm -hmm. sent from the gut to the brain. And so the ways we can kind of describe that uh, that people might think about is when we're nervous, we might have bowel issues, for example. And similarly, if we have kind of a, a gut infection, we might feel a bit down and a bit, mm-hmm. you know. And so there are these real connections between the gut and the brain that can make you consider the, the gut being a second brain. And that's before we even consider all of the microbes that are living inside the gut as well. The gut itself has these connections Mm -hmm. as part of its being part of the peripheral nervous system, but it also contains all these trillions of microbes that make up the the human microbiome, the human microbiota, the gut microbiota, whatever you want to call it. And this is interesting because these microbes and the gut cells themselves can produce certain compounds or chemicals that can also be produced in the brain. So our brain produces things like serotonin, dopamine, some of these neurotransmitters that make us feel happy, that make us feel calm, that make us feel stressed. And many of these really important chemicals can also be produced in the gut. And they can be produced both by our gut cells in certain cells called enteroendocrine cells, but they can also be produced by the gut bacteria. And the bacteria in the gut cells kind of communicate to, to produce lots of these different chemicals. So the kind of number that's thrown around a lot is the serotonin, which is the chemical that is really nature's antidepressant. About 90% of that is actually produced in the gut. And only about 10% of the body's whole serotonin load is produced in the brain. Now, that serotonin that's produced in the gut has lots of other functions other than just making you feel a bit more calm. It actually (laughs) contributes to your gut function and and, and does lots of other things. But really, it just shows that the, the gut... And the brain are intricately connected, much more so than even many other organs in the body, and the gut can conduct lots of functions that impact brain health, and which is why we might refer to it as a as a second brain.
0: Yeah, wow. I remember you also once mentioned about that gut feeling that we have that's also essentially linked to how we feel, right, or even the butterflies in our stomach. So these sensations usually project in response to an event that we face, whether. It's sitting an exam, or even seeing another human that we've got feelings for, but it triggers some sort of emotion. So clearly, like you said, there is that link between the two, and it's it's very strong on a physiological level, but even on an emotional level, if you if you think about it. Oh, absolutely!
1: Yeah, and th- those feelings are real. They are, you know, electrical signals that are are being sent from our brain to our down into our periphery. And, and it's kind of felt in our gut as well. Maybe that's where the signals are, are going to. And so that's where we get those butterflies in yeah. our stomach. Or, and th- we don't really know why that is. It's suggested that maybe evolutionarily, if there's some sort of threat or danger that maybe humans needed to empty their bowels. And so that was like a signal from the brain mm-hmm. to be like, you know, you need to empty your bowels so you can run away from this threat or this danger. And that's what mm-hmm. the kind of nervousness is. But they are kind of real, real signals yeah. that connect the two organs.
0: Absolutely. It's similar to stress, right? If we think about cortisol, it's always good to have it to a certain extent because you said evolutionary, that flight or flight, fight or flight, sorry, response. So the gut bacteria are now being referred to as key players in our mood and mental health, as you mentioned, in terms of, you know, serotonin being produced in our gut. Research is now showing that it can even relieve symptoms of depression, anxiety, and stress. But it can also make it worse depending on the bacteria in our guts. What are the mechanisms in our gut that impact our mood, stress, emotions? And maybe you can talk a little bit about the different neurotransmitters as you already did, but also the vagus nerve if it's applicable.
1: Yeah. So I've I've gone through some of them, but you, you've kind of mentioned them there as well. There's There's the electrical signals that are sent through this peripheral nervous system. That's kind of the main route of connection. And one of the ma- those main kind of routes in that system is what's known as the vagus nerve. And that's a really big nerve that connects the gut with the brain. And so that can send signals in both directions. The brain can send signals down through the vagus nerve to tell the gut to do something. But similarly, things that are happening in the gut can lead to signals being sent up to the brain as well to send it messages. So that's one route, a connection. The other route is through this production of things like neurotransmitters that I said as well. These are, can be produced by enteroendocrine cells, these cells that line the gut wall. They can be produced by some of the gut bacteria. So I mentioned serotonin mm. as well, but you also have things like dopamine, GABA. They all have these kind of mm. weird fancy names that, that are produced in the gut. And these have, as I said, a huge number of functions. They don't only just affect our mood and things like that. They have other functions, but we're still learning whether they're passed directly from the gut to the brain. Do they just make it up to the kind of blood brain barrier, which is the kind of at the Mm -hmm. edge of the brain? And do they kind of cause some signaling there? And that's research that's still ongoing. We don't quite know how that works. There's other things that are produced in in the gut, which can cross over into the brain or at least affect that signaling at the blood brain barrier. So our gut bacteria, if you think we have thousands of different species of them, they produce tenfold more different chemicals Mm -hmm. as well, as well as these neurotransmitters. So our gut microbes can produce things like short chain fatty acids, they can produce indels. The point is that many of these we're slowly discovering can be passed Mm -hmm. through the bloodstream and work their way up to the brain and kind of cause changes there. And a lot of these might be subtle changes, but they could be big changes as well. So there's interesting research in animals that maybe things like parkinson's disease or maybe things like alzheimer's may have mm-hmm. some origins from chemicals that are passed from the gut up to the brain so mm-hmm. yeah really it's it's a combination of the electrical signals the hormonal signals and these other kind of chemicals that are passed from the gut to the brain that mm-hmm. that make up this whole gut brain axis
0: yeah i mean i think what i'm wondering right now it's kind of the whole chicken and the egg situation do we have a traumatic event or do we have a mental disorder diagnosed and that changes our microbiota or is it vice versa? Does our microbiome change in our environment and then that in turn kind of impacts our mental health?
1: Yeah, you're right. That's what a lot of science is trying to figure out in, in many disease states. What is the, the cause or the consequence or what is the, the chicken or the egg?
0: Mm-hmm. And it's still,
1: I can't give you a clear answer for that as, as no one really could for many disease states. Yeah, and it's always usually always going to be a combination of both. There's not going to be a clear answer. I think specifically, a traumatic event is is unlikely. You know, uh, something very acute like that is unlikely to cause a kind of drastic change in gut physiology that will last forever, like it can for kind of mental health and, and brain health. Mm-hmm. However, certainly chronic stress can can certainly impact the gut microbiome. And that's been shown consistently both in animal studies in the lab and, and in humans as well. If we're producing lots and lots of cortisol all the time, which is this stress hormone, that can actually pass through the body and can, and can cause inflammation. Cortisol makes up Part of this pathway that triggers this immune response, and all of that can actually change the physiology of the gut as well. That can change what's what's happening inside of us, and so mm-hmm. that's why things like IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, which is very prevalent, mm-hmm. is now being classified as kind of a, a gut-brain axis disorder. We don't know the real reason for that. IBS might have lots of different causes or, or triggers. However, in many cases people with chronic IBS also have anxiety, stress, and, and some of these other kind of milder mental health conditions. Mm. And so that kind of suggests that there could be a cause and consequence either way. It might be that we have some sort of trigger of, of poor gut function that is affecting brain health. We might have a, a stressful condition and that is affecting gut health. So mm-hmm. in, in many of these conditions, there's a bit of both for that cause and consequence. But as I said before, there's some interesting research for things like Parkinson's and things like that, that it may be relying more heavily on a a cause coming from from the gut end. But that's, that's still ongoing.
0: Well, you mentioned Parkinson's, and then you also mentioned cortisol, so chronic stress, for example. But what about more psychiatric disorders? So depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, I know there has been a couple of research that has shown significant differences in the composition of the microbiome in people who have these conditions than people who don't. What are the current findings in this research and how confident are we that it is essentially the case and as you mentioned before, not due to maybe other factors that can influence the the gut?
1: Yeah. I mean, how confident are we? I would argue not very confident because this is still an early days Some of these more severe brain conditions or mental health conditions have a huge number of factors influencing them. You mentioned major depression, major depressive disorder, for example, doesn't have one cause to it. It has social Mm -hmm. factors. You have kind of other psychological factors. Then only then you can kind of think about kind of biological factors as well. And so one of those pieces of the puzzle we're learning could be the gut and and, and gut function. Mm -hmm. However, it's only going to be one one part of this larger picture. So most of this evidence has to date come from animal studies, which are very useful in in the lab for us to try and think about these studies. And you can do things in animals and feed them different things that are much easier and quicker to do than doing in humans. So Mm -hmm. that's the kind of caveat we have to think of at the moment that... When people talk about this gut brain access, a lot of it has been done in animals, but slowly there's Mm -hmm. more and more research being done in humans. So the research that has been done in humans so far has showed things like the gut microbiome of people with major depressive disorder looks different to people that are healthy. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's interesting. However, people with major depressive disorder probably have a totally different diet. They probably Mm -hmm. have a different lifestyle. They mightn't kind of go out and meet people that mightn't you know, so all these different factors can change what their the gut microbiome looks like. So we don't know, as you said before, is is this a chicken or the egg? Is it a cause or con- consequence? And uh, mm-hmm. slowly, we're getting more evidence from kind of intervention trials and these randomised clinical trials, which are are the best way for us to study these things. So, for example, there's been certain probiotics or prebiotics or certain diets, for example, that target the gut microbiome, which have shown that they can have small but significant benefits in reducing symptoms of depression or anxiety. So some of these live bacteria or some of these prebiotic fibers, which help the growth of of certain good bacteria in the gut, can help to reduce things like cortisol, which is the the stress Mm -hmm. hormone, or they can reduce inflammation, which plays a role in in stress and in in brain health. And so that is is giving us more evidence that we can maybe target the gut microbiome Mm -hmm. for treating some of these conditions. But at the moment, they're, they're relatively small effects. You might get a kind of 10% 10% reduction, 10, 15% reduction in stress or depressive or other like symptoms. But hopefully that'll kind of translate into other treatments that have a larger effect as well, or they can be combined with other treatments so that for some of these more severe disorders.
0: Absolutely. I think regardless, our diet and the foods that we eat is very critical in our overall health and I guess physical health and mental health, they intertwine together, right? So they do go hand in hand. And you did highlight the importance of diet, but the gut microbiota is the main kind of driving force for changing our bacteria in the gut. And I'm actually excited to hear your response to this because this is essentially something that people can start doing immediately, right? We eat all the time. So what are the kind of diets and food that have shown to be beneficial for our gut? It could be in relation to mental health, but also in general, and also the ones that can harm it.
1: Yeah. So probably the the biggest tip or the biggest piece of advice for kind of dietary improvements for your, for your gut mm-hmm. microbiome is is the diversity of your diet. You know, we're all guilty a lot of the time of going into the supermarket and just buying the same foods over and over, or we're tired and we'll kind of eat the same dinner, the same breakfast uh, all the time. And that kind of severely restricts the number of foods that we're feeding, not only for ourselves, but for our gut microbiome. You know, humans can live on a relatively narrow diet. We'll be fine. You know, we mightn't be at our peak health, but we're fine. Whereas many of the microbes inside of us rely on, on certain different types of foods. You know, we have thousands of different types of bacteria and other microbes inside of us. And each one of them might rely on a different type of food for it to survive and, it, and for it to thrive. So really, we need to be feeding our microbiome with a wide diversity of foods to make sure that this ecosystem is thriving and, and is as diverse as possible. So the kind of pieces of advice I'd give to people to do that are to aim for 30 different types of plant-based foods every week. Now, it sounds a lot, but if you count mm-hmm. up every fruit or vegetable that you eat, every kind of different type of nut or seed or spice anything that hasn't come come from an animal, because most of these, our gut microbiomes predominantly rely on kind of non-animal-based foods. That's not to say that they they can't survive on and and they don't do well on some animal foods. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of the one piece of advice. The second piece would be in order to help do that, if ever you're going buying your groceries or doing your food shopping, buy a new uh, plant-based food that you haven't tried before. Buy a new type Mm -hmm. of grain, a new type of nut or seed or a new spice or something like that. And this all will add up to your kind of dietary diversity Mm -hmm. and and trying to hit those, that kind of relatively arbitrary number of, of 30 per week. As I kind of said, the... Foods high in fiber, which are mainly these plant-based foods, are the ones that really stimulate the growth of our gut bacteria. So humans don't have the enzymes to break down fiber, and there are many different types of fiber. But our gut bacteria do, and our gut bacteria ferment and break down fiber from our diet and produce all these really healthy compounds that then humans can absorb. So foods that include any fruit and vegetable, things like artichokes and Tin beans, you know, kind of lentils, chickpeas, uh, mm-hmm. kidney beans are really kind of good sources of fiber, as well as nuts and seeds. You know, I kind of will keep a jar of kind of mixed up, chopped nuts and seeds that can be kind of sprinkled on any salad, or cereal, or or mm-hmm. kind of really any any meal that you want. So that's kind of your your plant based foods, but also there's some interesting evidence that we had looked at and others looked at as well, showing that omega-3 fatty acids are beneficial for your gut microbiome as well. And so these are the kind of healthy fats that you get from oily fish. And the kind of recommendation is that we have two portions of oily fish per week. And so that would include things like mackerel, salmon, tuna, kind of more of these brown fish. Some people don't eat fish or they might be vegetarian. So you can also get omega-3s Although in a different form from things like walnuts and flaxseed, mm-hmm. but also increasingly people are getting it from algae and, and kind of algae supplements, mm-hmm. microalgae. So they are the kind of main pointers, I'd say, for our gut microbiome. The kind of final one then is people like to hear is things like polyphenols, and these are plant-based compounds that, that again, humans don't well certainly don't produce, but our gut microbiome digests them, and these are found in things like green tea, dark chocolate, red wine. Now, you know, obviously all these things need to be eaten yeah. in moderation as well, but, but they're all the ones that are really high in these polyphenols. And so can be can be beneficial for the gut microbiome as well. And fermented foods, sorry, I'm going on and on. But no, <laughs> fermented, foods, fermented foods are, are foods that are produced through the action of microbes and therefore contain lots of healthy microbes themselves. So yogurt, for example, there's only two ingredients in yogurt and that is milk and bacteria. And bacteria break down the kind of carbohydrates, the sugars in milk, and turn it into this kind of fermented form. And so in true natural yogurt, you should have lots of live, healthy microbes in there. But there's plenty of other, especially Asian or Eastern European foods that are also beneficial. So things like kimchi or sauerkraut, kefir, and many of these other fermented foods can also be good for your gut because they contain healthy bacteria that you're you're kind of then putting into your microbiome.
0: Yeah. I recently listened to an episode on your podcast, Biomes, with Professor Paul Cotter, I believe, about the benefits of fermented foods, which is essentially, you know, what our ancestors did, right, to preserve food. And where I'm from, which is like the Euroasia continent, fermented foods are still extremely popular with things like, you know, fermented cucumbers, eggplant, cabbages. So it's very interesting to see that what was traditionally done, we now have scientific evidence to support that it's good for us. So it kind of gives us the hint that, you know, our ancestors' way of living is something we need to look at more thoroughly as our bodies may be genetically predisposed to eat this way. Now, Rory, I want to talk a little bit about over-medicalization in the psychiatric field, as I'm sure you know, is a big issue that we face in the mental health field today. One, because yes, the drugs don't always work and they can cause immense side effects for some people. But more importantly is the method of prescribing these drugs. So the way it currently works, as I'm sure you know, is through a trial and error process, meaning if you go to a psychiatrist or a GP and you prescribe, let's say for someone who's depressed, one type of antidepressant, and then that doesn't work, you'd prescribe another. And then if that one doesn't work, then another. And I think the danger in that is pretty self-evident at this point. But there has been a recent interest in the field known as personalized or precision medicine, which actually looks at ways that we can customize medical treatments and prescriptions based on the individual's genetic profile. Some ways they're hoping to achieve this is through machine learning techniques, which can predict based on your genes, essentially, the probability of how much you will respond to a certain treatment or a drug. Now there's another way they're hoping to achieve this, and this is by looking at our gut bacteria and then predicting based on the way certain microbes react to drugs, because I'm I apparently, you know, the bacteria can either enhance or dehance drugs, or the, you know, microbes in our gut and what treatments will be most effective. So what are your thoughts of this on this research and how confident do you feel that this will be the next step in the field of mental health and got microbes?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really exciting area. You know, personalized medicine has been spoken about for a couple of decades now, and it really came out of the Human Genome Project. And this was in the 1990s when, well, scientists for the first time managed to kind of read the entire human genetic code. And so they figured then that, well, we know every gene that's in the human body. And and nowadays you can read someone's whole genome quite easily in a couple of days. They decided that, well, this is the start of personalized medicine. Rather than prescribing someone just a general drug like we do all the time, we'll be able to look at their genes and we'll be able to to give them something that's that's perfectly suitable for them. Mm -hmm. Today, it hasn't really worked very well. Not that it hasn't worked, but it hasn't been realized so much. And that's because it is quite hard to do. Firstly, because you can't change someone's genes. And so there isn't a a different drug for every gene yet, you know, and and it takes a long time to get a new drug. But there are certain aspects that we have been able to realize this. So if you think about people that get preventative mastectomies, for example, people that have a gene that makes them really, really at high risk of having breast cancer. There's many women now that very bravely get a preventive mastectomy. So that is a, Mm -hmm. that is Precision medicine that is you know personalized medicine in a way, by reading someone's genes and then saying this is a specific treatment that, or a preventive mm-hmm. treatment that you can get. So we haven't realized that yet in psychological health or in or in brain health. but what's interesting is that the gut microbiome, as I said before, has a much larger genome. there's many more genes. And what is interesting about that is we can change the gut microbiome. We can't change the human, our own genes, but we can change the, the genes of our gut microbes, or at least we can change the types of microbes are there so you have different genes that are there. And so because we know that our, our gut microbes play a huge role in our own health, it's probably more likely that this personalized medicine will be more efficient if we use it to target the gut microbiome rather than target uh, human genes themselves. Mm. And so we're, we're slowly learning to do that. As you say, by using these really fancy kind of algorithms and computational approaches, machine learning, we can look at kind of personalized treatments for people. So one big study that has been done so far in this isn't in brain health, but it's in looking at, at blood sugar in humans. So we all have our... our different responses to different foods. So I might eat a banana and my blood sugar might go up really high and you might eat a banana, sir, and yours might just stay kind of only a little small peak. Whereas I might eat cookies and my blood sugar might kind of stay like this. And then if you ate them, they might go like that. So we all have personalized responses to different foods and different medications. And so that means what these researchers did was design kind of personalized diets for people based on their gut microbiomes, which were controlling a lot of these responses, And they could create personalized diets for people that would keep their blood sugar at at a healthy level. So it's possible that we could do this for brain health as well. The triggers that might cause stress or anxiety or even things like Alzheimer's or anything like that in one person might be different for another person. Mm -hmm. And that might be driven through our our gut microbes. So it's possible in the future that a kind of drug for Parkinson's or Alzheimer's for me might be different than, than it is for my neighbor. So it's we're not quite there yet. One of the reasons that this also is possible is because our microbiomes play a huge role in how drugs are digested as well so mm-hmm. or broken down. So some drugs, for example, wouldn't work at all or wouldn't work very efficiently at all if we didn't have gut microbes. We wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to digest them or break them down very well. And there are certain bacteria that you need in, in your gut to kind of break down and make some drugs effective. On the other hand, there are also some bacteria that could be in your gut which can actually make some drugs more toxic. So you have to be be careful for that. So that kind of suggests that in the future, you could have a, a drug that is also given to someone with a probiotic or with some sort of mm-hmm. other medicine that targets the gut microbiome to make it more effective for that person or to make it suitable for that person individually that wouldn't be given to to someone else.
0: Yeah. I want to go back to, you mentioned probiotic. And I feel like we didn't really emphasize on it back when we were talking about the diet. And I and I did want to ask you this question, are fermented foods essentially probiotics or prebiotics? And is, is there a difference in that in a sense of the tablets that we take as probiotics than if we have it in actual food?
1: There's been an issue of this over the last number of years because mm-hmm. probiotics became a very kind of cool term for a while. And, mm-hmm. and every food company in the world started saying that they we're sort of producing a probiotic and some mm-hmm. yogurt with some bacteria. in. So there are very strict definitions in the scientific literature for what a probiotic and what a prebiotic is. And a probiotic has to be a live microorganism that if it's administered in sufficient quantities has a specific health benefit. So that mm-hmm. means... Not all bacteria that we eat in certain foods, if you know, in a yogurt drink or anything else are are necessarily probiotic because a bacteria has to have a proven health benefit for it to be called a a probiotic. So Mm. as I said, companies started throwing any old bacteria into a a food and saying that this was a a probiotic food or or drink. And at least in Europe anyway, that was clamped down on and the, the European Food Safety Authority said you can't use the word probiotic anymore because it's a health claim. So it implies that it has a health benefit and none of your foods you know, have proven evidence <laughs> of having a health benefit. That's not to say that there are a small number of, well, a growing number of bacteria which are sold as supplements in these pills that do have very good evidence behind them. Most of them, I have to say, don't, but there is a small handful that do. And mm-hmm. so that would involve these probiotics being given in a randomized trials. People are given probiotic or placebo and you measure a specific outcome. It might be kind of bloating and gas. It might be cholesterol levels or or whatever it is. So probiotics do have great potential, but they're not all the same. Everyone kind of always asks, oh, should I be taking a probiotic every day? Yes. Well, the question you, you should say to them was, well, why? What are you taking it for? It's like everything else. you know. Do you have IBS symptoms? If you do, and the diet isn't working for you, you shouldn't change your diet, then yeah, maybe you should consider taking a probiotic for a while, but not every probiotic is the same. Take a probiotic that mm-hmm. does, does have really good scientific evidence for improving symptoms of IBS, because another probiotic mightn't work at all. So we need to kind of get that out into the, the kind of public knowledge at first, that mm-hmm. not all probiotics are the same. Prebiotics, are, as I was mentioned before, are these fibres which specifically feed or help the growth of the healthy bacteria that are already there in your gut. Mm -hmm. And so these, I think, have slightly more potential. They're slightly less contentious because they're slightly simpler. You know, anyone could really take a a prebiotic and and benefit in somewhat because they're kind of adding to their fiber. They're probably adding to the more of the kind of healthy bacteria that are growing in, in your gut there's less of them out there in the market. And so they're probably a little less regulated at the moment, but that's because they're a little more generic. But th- these are things like FOS, GOS, Inulin, mm-hmm. and these are, are found in many plant-based foods. So you ask then, are if you take fermented foods, then are they full of probiotics? Well, not technically, mm-hmm. no. They're full mm-hmm. of healthy bacteria, yes. But we don't necessarily know. They're not specific health bacteria that we know has a, has a defined health benefit in them because there's so many different Ooh. types of microbes. But that's not to say that they're healthy. You know, They do contain lots of generically good bacteria, which can be beneficial for you, but they're not strictly probiotics. But the benefit of them is they contain both the healthy bacteria. They also contain fiber usually because they're usually things like, I don't know, if you think of sauerkraut or kimchi, they contain things like cabbage and, and other things in them that, which are also beneficial. So yeah, they can certainly contribute to a healthy microbiome, but they're probably separate to probiotics.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you so much for clarifying that. There's clearly so much potential in the field in understanding the gut-brain connection, starting from diversifying our diet, all the way from identifying effective drug treatment from our own gut. And there's even a study done on some people with depression whose depressive symptoms were relieved after taking probiotics. So there's just so much to explore and learn from here. So Ruri, before we wrap up this episode, I know you have some absolutely fascinating research projects that you're currently working on, such as Shine, Sanitation, Hygiene, Infant Nutrition Efficacy, as well as Metasam, Metagenomics, and Metabolomics of Severe Acute Malnutrition. Can you tell us more about this research and any other current research that you are working on and also what you hope the future holds for the field?
1: Yeah. So it's a bit kind of left field of what we've been talking about, my area of research, but I suppose it's all somewhat somewhat connected. But I'm at the moment anyway, interested in our gut microbiomes in really early life. You know, we in the womb are, are essentially sterile, and so we are exposed to this microbial world as, as soon as we're born. And our initial exposures to microbes in very early life can define some of our health trajectories later on. So I'm interested in the microbiome in really early life and and what that means for our our health later on. And specifically in the context of child undernutrition. Mm
0: -hmm. So we
1: focus a lot on kind of overnutrition in the Western world, but there's still a lot of undernutrition. But there's a lot of overlap between undernutrition and overnutrition as well, surprisingly. If you think about babies that are born by C-section, for example, Mm -hmm. they have a completely different microbiome after they're born than babies who are born through a, a standard delivery. And that can have implications later on. That is associated with your risk of developing asthma, of allergies, of, of some of these other inflammatory conditions. So, mm-hmm. what I look at is whether a mother's microbiome can affect her baby, and whether the baby's microbiome in really early life can affect whether it gets an infection, whether it grows really well, and whether it yeah is under undernourished or grows and develops healthily. So we do different nutrition interventions or antibiotic interventions or different ways to try and improve the health and growth of of babies either before they're born or or immediately after they're born. And I'm looking at whether that is mediated through their gut microbiome. So for example, we studied whether if you build lots of toilets in a very rural area of Zimbabwe for Mm -hmm. half the people and you don't do it for another half of people, or you give babies a nutrition supplement from six months of age onwards, or not, whether all of that could improve their growth mm-hmm. by kind of reducing the infections they're exposed to. Does it change their microbiome in early life to fight off all the bad bacteria and to keep the good bacteria? And these are the kind of projects we're still working on at the moment, trying to figure out the very complex story about how microbes in early life affect all of these different pathways that help children to, to grow very well. Some brain health comes into that as well, because. Children that don't grow as well, their brains don't grow as well either. And so they don't learn as well. And so that can maybe have implications for their brain health into later life. And that's certainly things that we're we're looking at as well and, and whether our microbial exposures contribute to that. You know, if babies have a very bad microbiome that allows different infections to come into them, does that? prevent them from growing very well? And does that prevent their brain from growing very well? And does that prevent them from learning? And does that maybe lead them to be at heightened risk of a mental health disorder in later life? Mm -hmm. So they're very kind of complex questions that take a long time to study, but they're very kind of important and interesting ones as well.
0: It's honestly so fascinating. Rory, thank you so much once again for your time and being part of this episode. I wish you the best of luck with your current research. And I'm very excited to share this episode with the world.
1: Thank you very much, Rory. It was great.
0: And thank you everyone for tuning in and we'll catch you next time.